Thank you all very much for coming tonight. I'm it's very difficult for me to put into words how deeply touched I am to see you all not speaking personally but to realize um how the power of master's teaching has just continued to roll out like a like an ocean wave. Um I'm old enough, Jaya and I are both old enough in the work of Ananda and then therefore also chronologically as well to have remembered a very 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 different time when the idea that Ananda there would be an Ananda center in Pune India I believe was clear in Swamiji's mind but it was never clear in our minds we were um in our early 20s we were rebellious Americans who had just basically turned our back on every expectation that our families had of us and society had of us we'd gone out to this country place it was back to the land kind of era and we had no idea really what we were doing on a certain level but there was a compelling call that in retrospect one understands was coming from god but at the time actually we had no idea where it was coming from um we had no idea of the power of what was moving us i guess that's what i would say and one of the things that i've seen after all these years is how to, to what an extent we are often acting according to an inner call that we r- really are are only dimly conscious of that what we think we're doing with our minds is just a very very tiny part of who we are when i look back over the many years that i have had of association with master with swamiji with ananda i see so much mental confusion i remember just trying to figure everything out with my mind my very first summer that i was there and my only excuse is i'd only been there a couple of months i was an intellectual person and i thought that truth was arrived at by gathering all the facts and analyzing them and somehow that was the method i thought i would use but i could tell that it wasn't working and oftentimes when we're doing the wrong thing it doesn't occur to us that we're doing the wrong thing it occurs to us that we're not doing enough of the wrong thing so we just try to do more of it So I remember sitting with Swamiji and he was uh we he was in a in a soft chair as I recall and I was sitting in front of him and very earnestly I said to him I really think that I need to imp- to strengthen my power of analysis is what I said to Swami and I believe in retrospect he didn't actually move and I don't actually think he raised his voice but what I remembered for a long time was that he rose out of his chair and said no like that but i actually think he was sitting perfectly calmly but he projected a very strong thought that said no he said what you need to do is you need to develop devotion i barely had any idea even what he could possibly mean by that phrase i remember the first day i came to ananda village which was then ananda retreat was where i came to and there was a man there named Binai Binai was one of the very first members he wintered over the first year that Jai and Shivani and a few other people did 
And in those days, things were very chaotic and extremely primitive. And any sort of structure or anything that could keep the rain out or the weather out became a, a house or a workshop or whatever. And there was some kind of an abandoned bread truck. I don't know what, what made it a bread truck, except maybe it said bread on the side of it. And it was just without a motor. It was just the old rusting body of this truck there. We all needed money. Benai actually eventually became a gemologist and made has made beautiful jewelry over the years, and so the seed of that was in him. So we needed money, but we had no money with which to make money. So Benai conceived of this wonderful idea where he would cut off branches of manzanita, which is this beautiful red wood. He would hollow them out, and, he poured, and then he would gather uh, wildflowers. He would press them and dry them. He put a little rosin inside, clear rosin inside the wood, and then he put the flowers in it. And voila, we had a product. It was keychains, it was necklaces. They were actually, you know, they were a little rustic, but they were actually quite charming. And he went out and sold them. And he set his whole workshop up in this abandoned bread truck like this. I mean, this I sort of all found out a little bit more later. But then someone else decided that the truck was an eyesore and somehow managed to get a tractor and push it over a cliff, you know, just to get it off our land having no idea that Benai was making his livelihood inside that thing. So I come into the story when I walk into the uh, reception area, and Benai was having a conversation with another uh, first-year man named Satya, and they were having this conversation, and Benai says, I really felt that Mother wanted me to make the jewelry business, but I guess I didn't understand her because Mother pushed the truck off over the edge, and so now I'm just really not sure what Mother wants me to do. My first thought is, now this might not make sense to you, I just realized I'm in India. In America, I thought, he's kind of old to just be doing what his mother wants him to do. <laughs> this is the first time I realized this, this story makes no sense in this country. <laughs> he's exactly the right age to be doing what his mother tells him to do. But for my way of thinking, it was odd. And then I understood that he was talking about divine mother, which actually made it worse. That's the only thing I could say. I couldn't even for imagine think how, again, a grown man could think that Divine Mother had anything to do with his jewelry business, and she certainly didn't pu push the truck off the cliff. It was just, the whole thing was absolutely crazy to me. But I loved Swamiji. I wanted to live in the woods. I felt like Ananda was home, and if this all came with it, I would just take the whole thing with it. He was just one person. Maybe he was nuts. You know, maybe everyone, <laughs> maybe he didn't speak for the whole crowd. But then I'm talking to Swamiji at some point in there, and I present to him some incredibly complex mental issue that I was always dealing with at that time. He smiled at me so lovingly. I remember he was so sweet. He said, just give it to Divine Mother. And I sort of then waited for him to give me some real advice. Like, what am I supposed to do? Just give it to Divine Mother? Like, what is he talking about? And he seemed not to have anything more useful to say to me, so I just had to walk away. I had no idea. I come to work in the kitchen after one month there. Um, Swamiji asked me to go work into the, the kitchen that made the meals for like about 40 people who were living up there. Um, not only guests, but our own residents did not have their own kitchen, so they all came in to have food there. And this it was this uh, older woman, and she was a bit emotional. And uh, 
I came in and I was to be her assistant, except I knew absolutely nothing about cooking, which was a bit of an obstacle since I was supposed to help her cook. I believe she asked me to make scalloped potatoes, as I recall. And I said to her, and, you know, like, how do you do that? And again, she goes, Divine Mother, why do you send me people like this? You know? <laughs> I was able to write her off as a little nutty. That was, she was easier to write off as a little nutty. But, you know, there seemed to be this conspiracy of this kind of thinking, which meant absolutely nothing to me. I, I just didn't know at all what to do with it. Now, I don't, I'm not going to be able to tell you, you know, sort of what happened in between, because the next part of this story I remember is about six or seven years later, when I am now greeting guests and helping people who've just come, some woman lays in front of me some really just terrible saga for which there was no obvious answer, and I just took her hand and I said, just give it to Divine Mother. (laughs) She looked at me and I saw in her eyes and I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, look what's happened to me. (laughs) But it was such a glorious rather than a negative realization. I don't have any memory in between. I mean, I can't even point to any steps as to when it became a natural thought to me, so much so that I actually thought it would be helpful to someone else, which is really telling me that I'd become totally convinced that somehow, and this is where I I was going back to, what we think we're doing with our minds is really only a very little part of us. You know, you can see it to a certain extent when you look at children, and we're really no different than children, we're just taller and we just we play different games than children play but children don't have a mental context for what they're doing they just have a feeling about what they're doing when I was uh, six years old well in this lifetime I've never actually serious seriously pursued dance but it's always somehow been in my spirit and interestingly At one point in those early years at Ananda Village, an Indian dance troupe came and danced. I think they were mostly Americans, but they were very serious dancers. And that was the first time in my life I saw classical Indian dance. And it was so evocative to me. I I literally, I had to walk away for a while because it just was, it overcame me to see that art form, which somehow was in my Samskars, not in my life, but in my Samskars. I was too old and it was too late for me to take it up, but it was an alternate career. It was the road not taken. So when I was six, my mother sent me to ballet class, and I loved being in ballet class, and I remember vividly one of my recitals, and it was a pink tutu like this, and it had silver ribbon around the edge and a little thing like this, and there was silver ribbon here, and I had uh, curly hair. <laughs> and my mother would squinch it because it was curly, and she put this big silver bow. And I, I remember being on that stage, and I was magnificent. I really remember magnificent. Then I saw a photograph of myself. You know, like this. <laughs> 
was startling to me <laughs> because I remember the experience, you know, but it was, in a sense, what I remember was more real than what I was doing because it was me. And actually, uh, I've heard people say that when often when children are dancing like that or singing or sitting at the piano, they really are living a previous incarnation in which they were great at that. That's why I say, Mommy, Mommy, watch me dance. Aren't I beautiful? Listen to my song. Because we remember. And we, we don't know where we are exactly, but we can still feel because all of that is in us. And when we become devotees, when somehow or another something happens, I do know we all love to tell the story of our divine romance. How did you find autobiography? When did you first start? When did it occur to you that the answer to what you were looking for might actually be God? You know, I didn't, I didn't know that it was God for a very long time. I was looking for truth. I was looking for freedom. I wasn't against God. It just sort of, he didn't exactly figure in the equation. He, she, it. And so especially the idea of a, of a conscious divine mother who was taking care of us, it was way outside of my picture. I started on the path of self-realization with Ramakrishna, so I definitely had Mother Kali was part of that. But for an American girl, Mother Kali was just so far outside of the box that I didn't really have to integrate it into anything actual, like someone who would push a truck off a cliff or something like that. But there's always a moment for all of us, or or multiple moments, it's, it, not everyone has just that moment. When Swami Kriyananda was writing his autobiography, The Path, the first version, the new path he wrote later, he was writing The Path, and that summer, it was 1976, he'd finished, um, he'd finished the whole book, and he was polishing part one. And part one is up to the point where he meets Master and goes to Master and be- becomes a disciple. And he, uh, he and I and another woman named Kalyani were with Swamiji in an apartment in Hawaii. A friend had given him a condominium to stay in there so he could leave all his responsibilities behind. And just the three of us were there working on this story. I talk about this in the book I just published, Lightbearer. And, uh, Swamiji was actually, he, he, he was having Kalyani and I read the book out to, uh, aloud to him. And so he wanted to hear how the rhythm of the words go. He says, when you listen to it, you hear things that you don't hear as much. So Kalyani and I would take turns reading. Swami would either stretch out on the couch and he would just, he would close his eyes or he would sit in a comfortable chair. And then every so often he would stop us and he would stop and consider a word or a phrase. Sometimes he would even go to the typewriter and retype. This was the last book he did before computer, retype it and so on until he had it just so. So we're getting toward the end of it. And it's the part about Swamiji reading autobiography of a yogi in New York City, feeling exactly that Master belonged to him, there nothing in the context of his life, absolutely nothing, um, anticipated that he would pick up a, a book by an Indian guru and abandon his entire life 
and go to Los Angeles. I mean, his parents were prominent and uh, well-to-do. His father had a very high position. They they moved in. A, they weren't royalty, but they moved in a high social strata. Swami was the firstborn son. He was brilliant. He had every privilege there was in the world. The possibility that he would walk away from it at all, there just absolutely, it was nowhere in the story. And in fact, his father was in Egypt and his mother was on the boat crossing the Atlantic Ocean on her way to Egypt. So there was nobody to stop him. Swamiji himself said, it was really Divine Mother's grace. He said, I don't know what I would have done if I had, would have had to speak to my parents before doing this, but there was no way he could even contact them. It, so he just was completely free. So by this time, which is 1977, 76, I've, I've begun to work in our guest programs and I've talked to a lot of people. And I know that for most people, coming onto the path is a gradual process. So Swami's story is just so incredible. I said to him, sir, you know, I know this book is meant to be helpful to people, but your story was so complete and so instantaneous. I said, I'm afraid many people will feel that this isn't their path because it's taken them longer than that to make the decision. And Swami was so sweet about it. He said, I know, he said, I myself have considered that as a serious drawback about my life story. Isn't that so? And then he sort of shrugged and he said, but that's the way it happened. And there's just nothing I can do because that is the story I have to tell. But then Swamiji talked about once he got to Mount Washington, once he got to Los Angeles, he said he was actually, he said he was dizzy a lot of the time because it had been such a complete and total shift. And there were so many things that were being told to him that he had absolutely no place in his mind to put them. And he would just ask, did Master say that? And if Master said it, he just had to sort of sigh and just figure that he was going to have to rise to embrace it sooner or later. And But Swamiji talked to us about how he was a disciple. And, you know, everything about Swami's life was how to be a disciple. And the phrase he used that was so powerful and is so helpful, he said, I, I followed Master unhesitatingly. And what that meant was he had had an experience. He knew who Master was. He trusted, he believed in his experience. And nothing ever caused him to doubt that. I was unhesitating in my commitment to Master, Swami said, but I was not unquestioning. You know? And that really is extraordinary good advice for all of us on the spiritual path because it doesn't serve us on any level to be insincere because Divine Mother knows what we're doing. She knows what we're thinking. I had this cycle of time with Swamiji where he had given me a job that I was simply incapable of doing. I wasn't talented for it. I didn't have a knack. But I didn't understand that the way competent people become competent is they accept help. They let people help them and teach them. I was under the delusion that competent people spring out of the egg like that and never have to do anything to get good at things. 
So Swamiji was trying to train me, and he kept pushing on me. He kept making suggestions. He kept, you know, laying more work on me. I kept saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, but I just didn't know what to do. And he kept pushing. I kept affirming. He kept pushing. Finally, it just reached a crisis point like that. And he, we, we talked it out, and he said to me, you wanted to be a good disciple and say yes, and then he smiled and he said, but you never fooled me, <laughs> just like that. And I thought to myself, what a colossal waste of time. <laughs> but of course, I learned something very deep and very true in that, didn't I? Un- unhesitatingly, yes, but not unquestioningly. Because we have to build our spiritual life on a solid foundation of real experience. You know, that is the nature of the path of self-realization. That's simply what it is. It's, it's spiritual life grown from the inside out on the unshakable foundation of our actual experience. And that actual experience, this is where the game comes in, because the heart knows. The heart knows where it is. It knows what it's doing. Something has happened that's called us, and here we are. And the mind, the mind just does all kinds of things. Why do I have this karma? Why don't I have that karma? Doesn't it look easier if I could be them? Why don't I be like that? I wish I didn't have this. I wonder why that's happening. And then all along, the other part of us, which is really our soul nature, just marches steadily toward the light. You know? And my, I have a theory about spiritual growth, which is completely unorthodox. This is what I call the gospel according to Asha. Which is, it's very, very unreliable, really. When I first got on the spiritual path and felt I needed to improve my powers of analysis, and I just couldn't deal with this divine mother pushing trucks over hills or anything like that, I thought that since self-realization is, well, perfection, that I thought that perfection was in the sphere that I was already living in. And that I was going to take this personality and I was going to finally whip it into shape. And we were going to be so good at everything. I don't know what I was thinking because it was just spaghetti in my brain. But just this somehow this thought that the, the, that the realization was going to be for this self that I was accustomed to calling myself. You know, that's the confusion is this pronoun I. What are we talking about? That's all the misunderstanding of the Bible. Jesus says, I. People think, thought he meant Jesus walking around. They didn't he, know he meant I, the infinite spirit. In, in, the, in the tradition of Krishna, it's much better known. But I would say I, and I would think of my intellect and my mind and my attitudes and my preferences, and I was sort of analyzing them, stacking them up and trying to get them in order. Well, here's my gospel according to Asha. I don't actually think that part of ourselves ever gets itself together. I think it's kind of always a mess. It just kind of is chaos over there. It's not like we concentrate really hard and finally get all this in order. What happens is we forget about it. It just becomes like so unimportant to us. There's a personality. It has duties. It has all these attachments. It has fears. All this stuff happens. And it just remains, this is again my theory, just kind of a mess like this. But before we get on the spiritual path, 
that's all we are. You know, that's, that's all I was. I was my intellect, my potential, my possible profession, all the children I was going to have, just all these things that I was going to do like this. And what happened when I began to understand spiritual life is not like that person disappeared. She's still there. She still makes a lot of confusion. But she's about this big in the picture. So what, what it is is that we remain ourselves, but we see ourselves in context. And that context is this great sweep of incarnations in which this beautiful divine self is just walking toward the light. And that's just all we're doing. We're just walking toward the light. And all these different things, these many lifetimes, all these desires and unfulfillments, they just kind of whirl around. But they just become smaller and smaller in relationship to who and what we really are. So the concentration is the opposite of what I thought it was. I thought it was more and more concentrating on me. And I realized it's just less and less even concern about me. There was this gal who came to our community, and she had a lot of magnetism, and Swamiji tried to help her. But after a while, she stopped accepting invitations to satsang or to meet with him for any gathering, because she said, when I'm with Swamiji, I can't remember my problems, so I'm not working on them in the way I should. (laughs) Well, gal, you have really missed the point here. That is precisely the point. It's just, we cease to exist. And it's happening over there. You know, it's still taking care of its home and running its children and loving its husband and having its profession and occasionally winning awards for whatever it does. But it just moves around in this great sea of Divine Mother loving us, of being disciples of a great master, Swami Kriyananda said it perfectly. He said, I never identify with Kriyananda. He said, Kriyananda is an event for which I am responsible. And that is such an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Because if you are in charge, you do have to make sure that it happens properly. But it never crosses our mind that that's the definition of who I am. And that's that's what spiritual life is. It's gradually redefining reality itself so that, in fact, Divine Mother can just push the truck over the side of the hill because all we're doing is just moving through this world, really holding our mother's hand. You know, just think how little children are holding their mother's hand. Think how mother is holding the child's hand. That's that's our fundamental relationship. And everything that happens, happens in that context. But once it happens in that context, oh, how different it is. I look back at my life, and there were so many, oh, you know, so much drama and so much disappointment and so much fulfillment and so much stuff like this. But but from the moment I saw Swamiji, there was like this, I can only call it a steel cable that just fixed itself. I knew where I was going, and unhesitatingly, we go toward that. Everything else can swirl around it, and we have to ask these questions and wonder what's happening. But underneath that, the heart simply marches on to the goal. Build that heart connection. 
build that devotion. You know, devotion isn't only chanting. It means being devoted to. You know, just every every morning when you wake up, every night before you go to sleep, what is the most important thing to me? What is my reality? For what end was I made? For what purpose was I born? God realization. And say to God, Guru, or to whomever you pray, you know, hold my hand, keep me on this path day by day, just day by day. Take care of the minutes, Master said, and incarnations will take care of themselves. You know, all of this with the mind doesn't mean anything. All that matters is just the heart ever expanding and moving into that light. God bless you.